Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And uh, well, look, a couple of things I've got to say at the start of this episode. One is we have had, I think, the worst November weather I can remember. And it's been pouring with rain and blowing a gale uh, forever. And, uh, and, and still is. And our house, is, it's a little old house, a lovely little old house, but uh, it is rattling a little in the wind today. And I can hear the wind howling around. And old mate next door's just decided to start mowing his lawns. And so, uh, if, you know, look, if there are some sound effects over the first couple of minutes of this, of this episode, just um, treat it as an immersive experience. That this is not some slick production made in the studio, but in fact, this podcast comes to you from the real life experience of people like me and you. Um, well, actually, that is kind of true, I suppose. Uh, so anyway, hey, that's my disclaimer for uh, background noise. Um, it's, been a, it's been a little while, just a, well, not a long time, but just a, a bit longer than I had planned before this episode has come out. Uh, things have just been a little bit hectic around here at home with um, sort of an impending move and so on. So um, apologies for the slight uh, pause in podcast episodes coming out, but hey, like once again, just real people, guys. No judgment, please. As we, as I record this, as I speak to my microphone, uh, we are barreling toward the end of the year, and it's a little hard to believe it. In some ways, uh, this has been a weird, mad, oh, just upside down year. I don't know what I should have expected this year, but I didn't expect what it was. I don't think. We had, I suppose, come out of the lockdown to end all lockdowns in the second half of last year here in Auckland, and I felt quite good, perhaps, about the rhythms of this year, and perhaps naively so, and then it's been just really mixed up in its own ways, lots of isolations, and then, as many of you all know by now, I had COVID in the middle of the year, and that stayed with me for several months of migraines and brain fog, which made life as a thinker, talker, writer, lecturer, communicator, quite difficult. Um, and so, you know, that's been that's been a journey. And then, look, I don't think I anticipated at the beginning, I, there's no way I could have anticipated at the beginning of this year, the kind of conversations that would happen on In The Shift this year, the, the stuff that would come to light in the news and through the work of David Farrier and others about uh, large churches and the systemic toxicity that's present within uh, so many religious spaces. And, and as we started talking about that on In The Shift, it's just been, in many respects, an overwhelming experience um, of, of hearing from people of, of this podcast, finding um, new uh, people, I suppose, to, to listen and engage. Um, and it's felt like really important work, and without sounding too grandiose about what we're trying to do, but I, I feel like it's offered some people some solidarity and maybe some language and some understanding. And... Um, and at the same time, it's been intense, you know, as we've just heard so many stories from people. And, and then it's just been a, a sort of something really, in its own way, kind of beautiful to connect with so many people this year to hear, you know, whether it's online uh, or and even in real life. <laughs> and, and I mean, online is kind of real life, but you know what I mean, uh, in person to, to make friends, to make connections to feel a sense of solidarity across this growing community of people who are talking about 
their experiences, people finding their voice. You know, we've had through, for our patrons as well a, a little Discord community begin, uh, and and people finding each other there. And so that's in the midst of kind of all the the, the talking about trauma and and um, and pain and harm and serious stuff like that. There's also been this really beautiful sense of finding connection and community with people, and uh, and I hope that is able to continue and grow and we find some ways of reimagining connection and community uh, in ways that can be healthy uh, to continue cultivating and fostering conversations about our humanness and um this is not like this is not the last episode of the year i should i it's i'm starting to sound like i'm wrapping up but i'm not we've still got three or four conversations we want to bring you before christmas and um and today is one of those today is a follow-up Q&A episode with Carly and Shane. You might remember from a few episodes ago, we had a Q&A convo, uh, received a bunch of questions through email and also over Instagram and, and addressed some of those. We didn't get to all of them. And then we did another follow-up uh, question on, on social media and a bunch more questions came in. So we tackle some of those today, some of the ones we didn't get to last time and some of the new ones as well. And, and so that's fun. It was a fun convo. Love Carly and Shane both very wise, and I enjoyed chatting with them about, about all of this. Uh, so um, I hope you do too. I should perhaps say, should I? Yeah, I'll give my caveats, which I always like to give. I'm a great caveat giver. Um, that, you know, we come at these conversations just offering our reflections on our experiences. And these are not attempts to universally and objectively give the final answers on these kinds of things, but more just to engage in what I think is spirituality, hopefully at its best, which is it helps us have conversation. It helps us uh, talk with one another about things that matter for us. And without having to impose that in some kind of colonial way on one another, actually just be able to be honest about our experience and our observation and our reflection and, and see where that takes us uh, and hopefully toward health, toward un- understanding one another. And so um, as we're sort of tackling these various questions, some about the personal journey of faith and deconstruction or reconstruction or whatever language we give to that, and some about church, uh, I guess that's my, my sense of what it is that we're hoping to do by opening up these conversations and hopefully encourage you to have similar conversations with the people that you know in your life if you have them either in person or online. So that's what we do. So we, we, should, probably, we should probably start. I feel like I'm, I'm just... I feel, you know... I feel a little close. I feel a little close to you out there today for some reason. And I feel a bit reluctant to just move on to the, to the music and, and the convo. Um, but, you know, I'll have to do that eventually. I suppose, one, what, what else could I say? I, I don't think I have anything else to say. This is, um, this is probably not what they would recommend podcasters do in their intro, is just start to, to, to pause, slow down and, and ponder internally instead of uh, just seamlessly connecting to the next thing. So this is episode 74 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Well, on the In The Shift today, what a treat. Two of my favourites back for a conversation. We have Shane and Carly. Hello. 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 We're going to have another round of um, of Q&A. Last time, 
um, Shane abandoned us towards the end of the mm-hmm. conversation, Carly, and we were left to pick up the pieces of all of his mess. It was pretty. It was pretty I, hard, but we got through it together. We did. We did. I sto- I stormed out. You did, that's right. My rider was not met. I believe you were dragged out by a six-year-old, if I remember correctly. Oh, that is also true. Uh, yeah. Hey, so we um, had a few leftover questions from that time, and we've also had a bunch more come in since then. Everyone so we're going to see leftovers. Uh, what's that? Everyone loves leftovers. Yes, uh, and so we're going to get through, um, well, we'll see how many we get through of these today. Fun. Mm. There's kind of um, two groups of questions really that came in. One was more personal around faith and deconstruction and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then there were a bunch of questions around church, some of them quite philosophical, some of them a bit more practical. So we'll see how we go with all of that too. And um, we're not responsible for any answers we give. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and neither does this set up us, us up as the experts on all of these issues, but we're just going to see where our conversation takes us. We're more highly opinionated people than experts. Yeah, I read right. a thing on the internet once. I'm pretty sure I know about this. <laughs> Good. I do find that when I'm teaching theology, oftentimes we get into robust conversations with students. And sometimes, because I like to ask people where they get their ideas from, because they're often very firmly held. And, uh, and it's interesting to me how often it, when I keep asking, and so where did you get that idea from? How often things just come back to um, because my mum told me or my Sunday school teacher told me or I read it on the internet. Those are the kind of the three yeah, wow. main um, foundational <laughs> things. that for The holy reason, trinity of theology. That's right. <laughs> my mum, my Sunday school teacher and this blog I read once. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy's blog. Jimmy's a 12-year-old who lives... Uh, you know, on the other side of the world. Uh, okay, so let's try some questions then, given that highly inspirational setup. <laughs> Maybe we should just got our mums on. Uh, okay, so um, there, were, there were some questions around, and, and this has been, I think, a constant theme throughout the year. And so we've probably talked about this in various ways at different times this year. But this um, feeling that people still get when, when their fears... Um, begin to come to the surface as their beliefs start to unravel. Um, the sense that they start picking at the thread or, you know, there's all sorts of metaphors for for this experience of what happens when something that you thought was a really concrete certain system no longer seems concrete and certain and then you're worried the whole thing's going to fall apart or what kind of person you will turn into or where the end of this process is going to take you or are you going to turn into a bitter, angry person who's going to be one of those people that you were always warned about. Um, so let's have a bit of a conversation about that to, to kick us off. And Carly, we can start with you perhaps. Uh, when those beliefs start to unravel or when, I know you had a slightly different journey and we talked about last time, mm. into your faith from, from Shane and I and that you were always probably more of a questioner and a disruptor than very loyal uh, Shane and I who were <laughs> just sitting very politely in our little boxes um, saying all of the correct things. Um but, you know, how, how, do you, how can people think about dealing with that sense of unravelling, that sense of uncertainty, fear that sometimes comes to the surface when, when that experience is being had? Yeah, I think that um, unravelling of faith is actually like a process of faith. I, don't, I think we 
uh, in in really rigid kind of evangelical theological spaces, it's really easy to see that as um, a regression or, oh, no, I'm backsliding by accident and, and things of, of that nature. But, you know, even when you do look in Scripture, the, like the Bible's full of people just being like, oh, actually, suddenly the faith that I've held for however long I've held it is no longer adequate for the life and the circumstances that I find myself in and now what? And I think just being comforted and walking with the confidence that uh, an unraveling of faith is not to be feared or um, mm. is not even something to to be surprised by in, in many ways um, because it is, for me at least, it's just sort of been a natural function of, uh, you know, building and, and rebuilding and um, you know, we, I think it just as humans, as we grow and we learn and we're confronted with realities of the world that uh, challenge us and challenge our thinking, it's going to be really natural that the things we thought when we were kids and when we were teenagers and young adults and so on, just stop working because we learn nuance and mm. we get disappointed and we get hurt and things we thought would never happen to us do happen to us. <laughs> and to turn mm. around and be like, oh, the faith that I had when I was 12 isn't suitable for me now that I'm in my 30s or my 40s. I would be really, I'd be more concerned if you were like, no, this still works. This is fine for me. Um, mm. And so when your beliefs unravel and they can often feel like they're unraveling quickly, like I sometimes I think we want to turn around and replace one really rigid set of beliefs with another really rigid set of beliefs mm. because it's it's not the theology that gives us comfort, it's the framework. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. And just learning to be okay with that mystery of faith, I think, has been a, a mm. big part of of my journey in deconstruction and reconstruction is actually faith is super mysterious. We don't know a lot about this journey and it's a bit different for everyone and that's okay. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's like such a fantastic take because, yeah, like my – yeah, the the way I described that is that um like your faith may be unraveling, but it's never actually been raveled in the first place. Mm. Like I remember these Bible answers books that used to come out when I was a kid, and so every time some kind of curly question came up around evolution or like <laughs> something like this, they'd like you know have a whole list of answers for how you can reply to your friends on the school ground, and and it's just this kind of like it's kind of like people rushing around like trying to patch up a really leaky sieve. Um, mm. But it, it's it's an illusion. It's always been unraveled. Faith has always contained mystery. It's always evolved. This this experience that you know that I felt in my kind of mid twenties when I felt felt like it's all falling apart. You know, a couple of years into that journey, just realized this has happened time and time again throughout all of history. Um, this experience that felt so novel to me because no one had ever described it to me. Once I began to like really lean into it and. And, and and read and listen and, and and talk with wise people. I learned that this is an incredibly common and really natural and really healthy form mm. of faith development. And 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 that in no way kind of like diminishes your body's experience of it because it can feel. I don't think you need to downplay the fact that it can feel scary and it can feel frightening. Mm. And it can feel like mm. you're losing something. And all those are really valid 
emotions, that invalid feelings, that's that's kind of okay. And it can feel fun and exhilarating too. Um, but the the it's an illusion that it was ever tightly contained in a way that didn't, you know, require some risk in the first place. Um, that's more just a framework we were given to help us feel safe and feel confident in a world that felt unsafe. But um nothing's actually really changed other than we've kind of stepped outside that framework. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's that that thing as well where we often, like the process of learning more feels like understanding less. Like anyone who's ever done, mm. when I studied music at uni, I walked in with my <laughs> bass guitar being like, I know what I'm doing. I've been in a band. And then three years later, really, even though I'd, I was a much better, better player and I understood more about the language of music than I ever had my Mm. overwhelming feeling when I left university was I have no idea what I'm doing (laughs) and and the even though I was a much better musician I was also much more aware of how little I understood in the Mm. scheme of things Mm. and Mm. I think a lot of faith forming as well is like realizing how small um our understanding is in the scheme of things and mm. and i think even in scripture as well we we often take things that are meant to point us towards the idea of questioning and mystery and we again we we make these rigid structures out of them i always think about the way we talk about childlike faith we were like oh you should have childlike faith and what, how we interpret that a lot of the time is like, stop asking questions and do what I told you to do. But if you've not ever, what children do. No, if you've ever been around a child, they just ask They're questions. They're really annoying. Like the, there's never a, a thing they say that doesn't have a question mark at the end of it. There's this sense of like, but why, but why, but why? Uh, and, mm. and this constant uh, engagement with the world and trying to understand stuff that's a little bit beyond you. Um, mm. And I think that you know, we think, oh, my beliefs are falling apart around me, but I've, uh, my personal experience is not so much my, my beliefs are falling apart. I'm just becoming aware of how much more there is in my, my faith history and, and the mm. community of faith around me that I can engage with rather than just this really narrow band of what, how to do church and how to think about the Bible and Jesus and stuff. Mm. And yeah, if you if you want to find a God on the other side of that, you want that God to be big mm. enough to be able to handle that, right? Like yeah. not a God that's terrified that yeah. you've actually found out that he's the wizard in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pulling yeah. pulling strings and is actually quite small and pathetic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the curious things in this whole conversation is like how um or, or Curious might not be the right word. Frustrating might be the word, which is that. Infuriating. Come on, um, that, Michael. Infuriating, angering, <laughs> enraging. Um, <laughs> should I keep going? No. Uh, <laughs> careful now. I'm getting a little bit, I'm, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. I might get a bit <laughs> too <laughs> agitated. Uh, <laughs> how confident, especially like communicators, like in the space of faith, and this is not just a faith-related observation. This happens in lots of spaces. It certainly happens in other fields, in politics. It definitely happens, uh, which is that the person who doesn't know very much, like you were talking about before, Carly, but who thinks they do, who's mm. like so sure of themselves because they did read half a blog once or, or or whatever, or because they just haven't, you know, they haven't allowed themselves to go in the process of, accum- of, of opening themselves up to newness and to more mm. information. They become the, the the propagators of these very narrow, certain frameworks um, with very kind of binary 
um, oversimplified answers to what are in fact incredibly complex questions. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then they sell those oversimplified binary answers to people uh, mm. and give people that feeling of certainty, um, but then set those people up for not being able to navigate life as it really is and some of the things that we're talking about here, people mm. are not are not set up well, and you know, and you see that certainly in in other fields, as I say, you know, in politics, it's like, oh, can we have a nuanced conversation about policy in this area, or shall we just blame those guys? You know, <laughs> no, um, absolutely, we will not engage in any discussion. And the guy on the other side is the is the devil himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, we, have, we have a long tradition of scapegoating, so yes, you know, let's yes. keep that alive. Um. And, and and kind of folded into all this conversation too. Then is is and, and coming through in some of the questions is this feeling of like how do I not, how do I not you know this this sort of this worry about, um, letting this I don't know damage my sweetheart you know um, that the sweetness of you know keep your spirit sweet always used to be mm. something we always got told and I think mm. upon reflection was was more like a don't ever. Let your genuine and honest frustrations and anger about some of the unjust things that are happening come to the surface. Um, but kind of <laughs> sold as this: <laughs> keep your spirit sweet and don't let yourself get bitter, and so on. I, I might have already mentioned this, but I had a conversation with someone where they recounted the things that they had seen and witnessed and experienced um, as a kind of laundry list of terrible things and said, and even through all of that, I've kept a sweet spirit and Mm. not got bitter Mm. and going, you're also telling me through all of that, you never stood up for those being harmed, Mm. never got angry enough to say, this is not okay Mm. and never stopped this trauma machine. Um, And that was kind of seen as a really noble act that they'd managed to stay positive despite witnessing really, really horrible things. And, I my sense is just that that there are times where like bitterness is maybe pejoratively termed, yeah. but that where we sh- we should expect to be angry, we should expect mm. to be to feel negatively, we should expect that if there is actual trauma that we are carrying, that there's going to be a process to unravel that and to see that heal, and some mm. of that will involve anger, and some of that will want people to be held accountable, and that those are very valid and very natural. Things and that's not the same as letting it take over your life in a way mm. where you just become, you know, a, a, a you know a vengeance vigilante that experiences no joy for the rest of their life because mm. you've become consumed with this. There is a season for actually processing that. Yeah, absolutely. I I hundred percent agree with you. I think that that is, I guess, is exactly what we're talking about around nuance, right? That it's not, you know, how do I not get better? Well you know, often there's not a lot of control you've got over your emotional reaction to stuff that has happened to you. Mm. Um, And ignoring that or casting that aside is a recipe for that all showing up in some form or other later on down the track Um, Mm. and kind of revisiting you with a bit of a vengeance, which I think, you know, I myself have dealt with in like you know, physical symptoms of uh, like anxiety and, and stuff like that. And so mm. I think it is that balance, right, of allowing yourself to 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 feel those feelings and recognise that those are valid responses to trauma or, you know, abuse um, and then look for ways to move through that in a, in like, I, I hesitate to use in this context, the word like healing, but you do, I do mm-hmm. think of it in many ways, like a, you know, 
going to the gym and getting an injury, you don't just go, oh, well, never mind and like rack up another 20Ks on, on your deadlift <laughs> and be like, hopefully my spine, spine won't shoot out the back of my back. I'm sure it'll be fine. You need to take time off and, and rest and recover. Um, but the ultimate goal is to be able to go back to the gym if you want to or engage in other forms of physical activity if you want to and – and I think it is, I don't know, it's, it's such a hard thing. I think it looks different for, for every person. Mm. Yeah, I can't, you know, I think about the people who have expressed, that I know, who have expressed this kind of concern. And it seldom seems to me that people who are really worried about ending up bitter are the kind of people who are caught up in an endless cycle of mm. vengeance, um, who are trying to mm. burn the whole world down. Mm. Um, and... And you know, I, yeah, I, I guess I just—I I think it comes that that question itself comes from that the place of where we've been conditioned, if you like, um, yeah. not Very to good. allow those feelings to come yeah. that are actually valid. So we've been conditioned yeah. to push those down and to, to to see them as negative things that we don't want to have. Mm. Um, and mm. as you both, you know, I think really wisely um, talked talked through or reflected on, um, they actually have that in order for us to be honest, we actually have to let those things come to the surface and, and be what they mm. are. And many of those feelings are, are in fact not bitterness, like you said, Shane, mm. it's, a, it's a pejorative term. It's like a way to negatively characterise a set of feelings or attitudes that are in fact often um, quite, justif mm. quite justified and needed. Um, yeah. And so instead the, the encouragement is to go, okay, well, you know, was Jesus, was Jesus getting bitter? When he decided to flip the tables in the temple, you know, he's like, Ooh, gee, I'm not sure you've got a sweet spirit there, buddy. You know, hey, champ. Maybe, maybe tone it down a bit, champ. Mm -hmm. Something like that. <laughs> oh, I, think I had a uh, visceral reaction to champ. Yeah. <laughs> My body has some memories stored, apparently. Did you just have a, just then you had a visceral reaction to it? Yeah. Yeah, uh, just then. And I remembered having my head ruffled, my oh. hair ruffled by someone. That was good. The most patronising of ways. Uh, I do. I do feel as well that, that that's potentially where, like, just good community really matters. If you can find people who've been through that process, mm. who have kind of, you know, had some experience in this, and, and and can kind of sit with you in it and and give some lend some wisdom. You know, it's a bit like you know if, <laughs> when you go through a breakup. Like, you need a friend that can tell you while you vent about mm. all mm. the ways in which you've been wrong, but also call you out on your own bullshit too mm. when, you know when perhaps there's stuff that you're not that that you're not seeing and i think you know having people for whom this process isn't a surprise and have been there and can kind of create a safe container but that you also trust to push back on you when it's coming out in really un, unhelpful harmful forms or when you're getting malicious or mm. you know i think yeah just some wise counsel if you can find it is yeah mm. Yeah, one of the questions that came through as well was um, what are the, like, what are the blind spots in the deconstructing post-church mm. community? And I thought that was a really interesting question because, yeah, that one of the um, things we've reflected on this year has been that, you know, that sense of, like, even common enemy intimacy and that sense of you all start to form this sense of, yeah, those, got, those, those people all wronged us uh, and, yep. and aren't they the worst? Um, and, you know, again a necessary conversation when mm. there has been genuine abuse of power and and harm propagated by by those people in power and by those systems. But 
be interested, I guess, yeah, in, in your reflections, Carly. Maybe we'll throw to you first um, on what in this kind of in the kind of this community of people, and I don't just mean here people who have been harmed by the church or just limiting it to that to that conversation, but actually to all of those who are kind of in this space of of rethinking or deconstructing or maybe the the post church, whatever. Are there are there blind spots in in those communities, and if so, what might some of those be? Yeah, I think there's um I think we we have a few um and I think I think one of the key ones is like we think that we're the first generation who's ever wrestled with this yeah. and like therefore like we are alone in the world and bereft of any guiding light um mm. and I think we often isolate ourselves um in reality that you know we're far from the first you know, group of people to go through this wrestling with what church and faith look like in individual life and as communities, we're not going to be the last that will do this. And, you know, church and churchmanship is this kind of continuous process through history of like building and pulling mm. down and rebuilding and pulling mm. down. And I, and I think we can uh, find ourselves feeling the sense of like isolation and aloneness, which is, is, is valid because I think in the context mm. that we've talked about before on this podcast, you know, that there are specific kinds of church structures that are very much designed to make us feel isolated and mm. alone. Mm. Um, but I think mm. sometimes we carry that feeling into our deconstruction um, in, in ways where we don't see the, the breadth and beauty of a lot of other church and faith spaces um, around us that we can engage in and interact with if we still want to pursue um, some kind of um, faith and faith in community. So I think that's one thing where we just feel like we're, mm. we're by ourselves and no one understands. Um, mm. I think that we also, I think the deconstruction world is, at least in my experience, is is largely like, monocultural like most mm. of us are like white people mm-hmm. most of us are millennials mm-hmm. um and i think we carry a contempt sometimes for uh, uh church spaces of color for like uh, mm. pacifica mm. churches for black churches because uh, we often don't understand the cultural context in which those kinds of churches operate and we mm. see a lot mm. of the same uh, physical trappings of like the style of music and the style of preaching and we apply our own hurt and experiences of abuse into into those situations and we can we can really turn away from um, from our brothers and sisters who who are you know have had really different church experiences to us because they have mm. similar stuff going on on the surface, mm. um, and I think mm. that's a real challenge for us of like how do we engage in uh, in non-white spaces? Um, so I think that's another one that we often don't talk about because it's really challenging and uncomfortable mm. for us mm. to 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 recognise um, these spaces can be really mono monolithic in terms of mostly being white people. Hmm. Um, you managed not to say dudes there, but that's also <laughs> incredibly valid in that, hmm. you know, there there is a sense in which there's a bit of like a Theobro thing going on within this space where, you know, and, and often it's because 
people like us already have some kind of platform um, and have, you know, <laughs> the doors opened for us to, you know, to do the study, to do the learning, to have the confidence to speak and feel like someone might listen to us and all of those things. And, you know, one of the things I've loved about the way in which Frosty's gone about this is, is just continue to open space for other other voices from other places because I think it's, yeah, it's it's all, all too easy for it to become, yeah, another monoculture. Um, I also just think that there's, a, there's just a real danger of another kind of form of legalism as well, mm. like that it can become re a really ungracious space. Um, and when we're angry, we do. Like, you know, like you know, I can absolutely be an arrogant dickhead um, in, my, in my worst forms um, and around this stuff too where, where we – it's really easy to become patronising of people, you know, who haven't necessarily thought about particular things. And I think a, mm. there needs to be a massive distinction between critiquing harmful systems and being, you know, rightfully angry <laughs> about the ways in which people are systemically harmed and downtrodden and even, you know, particular people who, can, who, who refuse to repent of this stuff um, – and then just creating a new kind of checklist in which in, unless everyone has thought of all the things that we have and ticks all those boxes, then, you know, we, we're entitled to not show them grace or kindness. And I think, yeah, that's that's something we're all vulnerable to. As I'm, as I'm hearing what you guys are thinking about, you know, so much of that resonates for me and in the sense that sometimes what can happen is that especially as, um, as white folk having these conversations is that we can we can deconstruct our faith, but still very much on our terms, and mm -hmm. in ways that where we still control the narrative and control the story. Um, and so there's like a decolonizing, you know, conversation to have in all of this as well. Mm. That challenge to to address some of that kind of that that colonizing thinking that's still embedded within me, um, mm. and mm. I might be able to see it in Christianity as this kind of empire, but it's also woven through kind of my whole cultural way of being and and and, and seeing the mm. world. And I think kind of connected to that for me is interesting. I think yeah. in the kind of deconstruction slash post church thing, and even going back to the the like the alone thing, is that um, what we can be left with sometimes is simply a um, a very self oriented kind of neoliberal yeah. capitalist yeah. Mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. where it's, okay, cool, I've deconstructed all of the ways in which this faith gave me meaning um, and so I'm just going to go and live my best life and, 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 um, and you know, again, understandably when like agency has been taken from people or when um, the sense of almost a fetishization of suffering <laughs> or of, um, mm. of self-giving has taken mm. place within the church at times and some people haven't been able to, um, have been discouraged from prioritising self and that's a very real thing that's happened. But I, I don't want us to be left as, a, as in our human conversations with, with simply then just kind of a pursuit of the capitalist. Consumer capitalism. Yeah, we're just the <laughs> yeah. pursuit of the consumer Individual capitalist autonomy. dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Mm. Um, cool then, I'm just going to go and do what I want, make money and, mm. and, and be happy and, mm. and, and I feel like this. There's yeah, there's an interesting conversation to kind of be had there. Mm, mm. Uh, yeah, I'm on board with all that. I, I think maybe even just adding one more to the blind spots list before we move on is just um, coming back to overlooking our own participation in these systems. Mm. Mm. Um, 
I think that's a major blind spot that like once we feel like we've moved out of them, it's really easy to not acknowledge the fact that we participated in them. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, you know, I, I was a leader who participated in in these systems and gained a lot from them. And mm. even though I think I got out reasonably early and, and missed some of the forms of them and can excuse some of those things because it was just us and our youth doing what we knew best, but I think it's really important to return with humility to the fact that, you know, many of us had a lot to gain in these systems and and are still accountable for that. Mm. Um, and, and you know, some of this work is penance. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, like I, I think it's, it's, it's important not to hold too much of a holier-than-thou attitude about it when this is stuff that, you know, even though we were probably doing the best we could at the time, um, yeah, we gained a lot from it as well mm-hmm. and participated in it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. Um, and I think you're yeah, going along with that. Is, yeah, and, and perhaps woven through all of these different reflections is, yes, when it's like, oh, those, those things I used to be a part of, that's where all the problems mm. were. And now I've left that. I don't carry any of those with me. I'm not responsible for anything that I did, you know, as a part of that. And I don't carry any of those with me in any kind of way. Um, I think there's a challenge here to to recognise the ways in which all of these things are woven through us and, and still present to us and that we participated in the past and, and things that we still are negotiating and learning and unlearning and 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 all that. Mm. Um, all right, okay. I'm gonna we're gonna based on based on our speed through these questions, this is gonna be the first of <laughs> one hundred and forty Q and A episodes with Carly, Shane and Michael. <laughs> Which is actually quite fine because I'd love to just chat to the, both of you about all of these things for, for years. Um, but but I did want to ask this question and this is one that's come up a lot this year as well because there are various people who are like, why do you kind of hang in there or <laughs> or why do you still believe if, or do you? Um, why not just recognise the whole thing's a shit show and move on? Um, mm. So... Kind of core question really is why why are you still a Christian? Um, mm. And I think that's a really interesting question mm. to talk about. So, mm. yes, um, Shane, do you want to go first this time? Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. I mean, I think it. De- yeah, why am I still a Christian? It depends when you ask and what day it is. Um, but I may have talked about this before, but I'm a person who tried to leave. Um, mm. and thought I was leaving and thought I had left. Uh, I'm a person who thought I was too smart for all of this. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I, I thought because of what I've witnessed, what I participated in, what I now knew that this was no longer a space that was going to bring me life. And there's, I've got kind of two strands, I guess, in my explanation for this. And one of this is kind of all of this, philosophy and sociology and theology and all these ologies, like all my kind of rationalizations around wrestling with this stuff. And this other half, which is like, because I felt like I couldn't, (laughs) like I I tried and I was still in love with something that sat at the center of this. I found something really authentic about it. Um, And it was something that really gave me life and shaped what beauty is for me in that sense I'm kind of an aesthetic Christian and that I find something at the center of this thing so beautiful that I want to live it out and it's it's strange having done kind of a lot of the work around you know the way 
brain works and sociology and pedagogy and all these things, which I can kind of explain away all the things that I feel. Um, but not in any way that I feel authentic. I feel like I'm just kind of stuck with this thing. And even if it's a trick because it was, you know, implanted in me so young that my synapses can't get away from it and it feels authentic, even though it's not, um, none of them are compelling enough for me to leave this mm. thing. Um, and I, you know, cop a lot of shit for that from mostly from myself of still participating in this thing that's <laughs> caused so much harm. Mm. And I wrestle with that. Um, and I, I guess, you know, con, kind of from the other side, I, I, I realize it's my tradition. It's like my first language. Um, and I find life in, in it still. I find I just still just really deeply resonate with ideas like the belovedness of all, of the challenge of enemy love and the love of neighbor, um, the idea of communities of mutual reciprocity, the idea of a personal universe as opposed to an impersonal one. Um a life that calls us beyond scapegoating and othering and invites us to resist abusive power structures. Um, there's immense life and beauty in that for me. Uh, and I continue to participate in Christian community in a context where um, there's great hostility towards that. I, I share my life between, um, you know, Christian communities and, and communities outside Outside of that, like I'm, I'm not kind of in a bubble like I once was. And I find great riches and great life and great depth and beauty in both of those things. But there's still something about the Jesus story and the upside down kingdom, which has just stuck with me and I can't get, a, can't get away from for better or worse. Mm. Good one. Love it. Mm. Carly, what about for you? Yeah. Um, I think as kind of similar, really, like I'm just so compelled by the person of Jesus that, uh, you know, I'm, there's something about that story and about that person that I can't shake. Um, and when I read about Jesus and the way that he moves through, you know, his context and his communities and he, f and found this way of, um, engaging in beauty and this kind of, you know, it's not, not the Jesus of like, you know, your, your mum's sort of painting of like a white dude with hair and like holding a lamb for some reason and <laughs> being like, Hey, I'm Jesus and here's my lamb. Um, but this, 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 Jesus Being got Jesus who, got heaps of lambs, Carly. He right, does, right. and he loves a good roast. <laughs> oh, that's not how the song um, went. Yeah, sorry, carry on. No, no, it's good. Um, but yeah, it's this uh, this this being who 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 shows this kind of resistance to the ugliness in in mm. life around mm. him, mm. but in mm. a way that is so beautiful and. Um, it manages to find this way to kind of knit uh, uh, faith and resistance and community and like some new way of being um, without um, getting, I guess, tainted by the ugliness of the stuff around him just it was so compelling to me. And it's something that I, you know, the, 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 way of of being in the world that he calls out is something i i want to engage with um mm. and 
I just I, I similar to to Shane. I mean, I wasn't raised in a in a in a Christian home, but there's just something I can't shake about it. Um, and sometimes I'll go. You know, I can go a very long time without like picking up a Bible, but I can't go very long without thinking about Jesus. Um, mm. And uh, and the the way that he just goes through his his life for for lack of a better mm. term. And uh, I think it's the the person of Jesus who who uh, kicked off um, the way I think about the world, the way I think about politics, the way I think about equality. Um, I was raised in kind of like you say, like a very neoliberal um, environment, and it was it was Jesus that first like opened my eyes to things beyond like oh maybe my experience isn't the only experience and isn't mm. everyone's experience, um, and I yeah, there's something about it that is too difficult to stop uh, thinking mm. about, yeah. It's beautiful. Mm. Yeah, really lovely. Um, I find this such an interesting question to reflect on um, for lots of reasons. Again, when I'm teaching theology sometimes, I um, I, ch- I, I offer students um, various perspectives on the notion of hell in the Christian tradition. And when I offer them um, perspectives that don't hold to the idea of hell as some kind of eternal suffering or punishment um, and and suggest that there are Christians who, who do not hold to that notion um, and ask them what they think about that. Invariably, my students will say, well, then what's the point of being a Christian? If, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I think to me that reveals such like a, an, an impoverished mm. faith in many respects um, mm. because mm. It, it, it suggests that the only reason many folk feel like they kind of have to stick it out is because it's their it's their ticket on the train mm. to to heaven and not to eternal suffering and and mm. and although there's other reasons they sort of might feel like um, matter to them or indeed do matter to them that still looms very large as like the primary kind of driving mm. thing and a big fear in Christianity of taking away that doctrine or challenging or overturning that doctrine is that it will essentially stop people from wanting to be Christian. Um, mm. So far, neither of you guys have said, um, I'm still a Christian because <laughs> I don't want to go to hell when I die because I'm terrified I of mean, God. I, I, I'm no relationship expert, <laughs> but uh, staying with someone because otherwise they'll kill you <laughs> doesn't seem like a very healthy basis or for even, such a thing. Or even better, make you um, keep you alive but suffering, you know. <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> so, and also, while I'm threatening to kill you, if you could go around and tell everyone else how great I am, that would be yeah. great. <laughs> very much. In fact, here's a here's a wee song you could sing while you do that. It's, uh, it's about how great I am. It's one main theme. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just add for me as well though, that I needed a new lens, like to yeah. just mm. to see. Some of this stuff, like I, I, I get people who don't like Jesus too. Mm. Like I, I think mm. if you know, if you if you try and take a first century 
um, representation of Jesus, which was, you know, still recorded by the evangelists um, who were dudes with their own agendas and, you know, didn't like particular people. I can see why you can read that text and still not like Jesus as well. I, get, I absolutely get that. Um, but for me, and that this is kind of more of a extras for experts thing, it was Rene Girard's scapegoating mechanism mm. um, uh, and mimetic theory for me that really, I think, gave me a way of understanding Jesus and Jesus' life and death in a way that really changed some stuff for me, which we mm-hmm. won't go into here because Frosty's done an episode on it before, um, which you can check out. <laughs> but, yeah, a new lens definitely helped. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's um, I, I probably there's too many things perhaps I could say but um, for myself. But, again, yeah, it's very much like, my my experience of this rather than some kind of feeling like I've tapped into the universal reason for why this is the answer for humankind. But I do um, I do still feel, for whatever reason, like um, life is meaningful. Mm. I do feel like things matter. I feel like things are connected. And although this is not always the case... I do feel, like you said, um, the language of like a personal versus an, or an impersonal universe, Shane. Um, mm. Although sometimes I have my doubts about that, I do most of the time still find my, uh, unavoidably my heart being drawn to the, to the notion mm. of like a, of, of relationality somehow being like at the centre of things, of there being mm. this kind of connectedness and, 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 something personal about reality and um and that keeps drawing me toward something divine and um and then i think i mean i know i do i think generally perhaps it's helpful but i'm just going to speak for myself that i think having vocabulary and mm. story that help us tease that out and make sense of it and give us a tradition to engage with and language and metaphor. Um, I guess the reason I haven't, and this is, again, just for me, the reason I haven't sort of just in, just just left and, and entered into kind of a, 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 more, a, a less defined sort of personal spiritual vibe um, is, is that I... I feel like the pressure to sort of having have to invent my spirituality, <laughs> um, <laughs> like that's too high a, high a bar for me. Um, I don't think I got that in me. So, so even even the even the fact that the vocabulary of Christianity gives me language to protest against it, um, mm. I think is kind of helpful. And then, you know, all of the things you guys have, have said about Jesus, I think I, I resonate with in terms of th- there's something going on in that story. And I'm, and that means that on my days when I'm not sure if I believe all the the things that a Christian apparently is supposed to believe, if the, you know, if the people in charge mm-hmm. are, <clears throat> are to be believed, um, you know, if 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 it's if it's all about believing the right things about a set of abstract truths, then I'm not sure I always get that yeah. right. Mm. No. Um, <laughs> but if it's like trying to figure out how. Um, this kind of way of being that Jesus confronts us with and challenges us with and invites us toward. And if it's about going on a journey of, of 
figuring out what that might look like for me, then then that's that's still very compelling f- for me. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd maybe add to that, especially when it's grounded. Like for me, this kind of goes into the – there's a question later on about, you know, do we still need church? And, I mean, without diving too deeply into that question, like the, the idea – like for me, like so much of my faith and spirituality isn't just this kind of like – personal thing Mm. it's embedded in communities of care um and it's i i don't think that i can see the divine like my theology leads me to a place where i don't think i can see the divine without seeing the divine through the eyes of the other Mm. the other without integrating other people's experiences um into how i understand god and how i understand god working in the world that and then that outworking itself in communities of mutuality and care beyond just convenience is actually been really central to me surviving in, in mm. life. Um, and 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 also for me just not getting lost in my own personal vortex of people just like me. Like I mm. think the one of the things I love about Christian community, whether that's, you know, churches you may have known it or house churches or just you know connect networks or intentional communities or whatever that is is this this and again taking us away from kind of autonomous individualism is this idea that you're committed to people because they are there not because you like them Mm. um and i think that that practice in having to see the belovedness of the other even though they wouldn't be people you'd necessarily choose to hang out with and then kind of falling in love with people that you wouldn't necessarily have become friends with um Mm. i think there's something of just such richness in that where i feel like if i was just left to curating my own community of care it'd be pretty shallow pretty narrow pretty small um and i think i'd be missing out on learning a lot about what is good in the world. Yeah, and I think there's that, uh, what we talked about earlier with blind spots as well, like there's a particular privilege in being able to live an isolated existence that mm-hmm. many people don't mm-hmm. actually have. You know, mm. there there are many people in New Zealand and Australia and all through the world who actually like need community around them to survive, like not even mm. just emotionally but physically. And... I think sometimes when we ask ourselves that question of like, do we need church? Do we need that kind of communal outworking of faith? Um, I think that le- that kind of often stems from one of those blind spots of mm. having that ability. A lot of us have the the financial um, and life flexibility to be by ourselves for the majority of the time and, and actually be okay. Um mm. And so I, th- I think there's a there's a recognition that for for a lot of people, like, can I exist by myself outside of a gathered community of faith is actually not even a question to that's right yeah to have the you know capacity to ask um, yeah yeah so true yeah and as someone who's supposed to be writing a thesis about this stuff <laughs> um, my one of my observations is observations is that you don't need it until you do. Mm. That that's so that the way in which our kind of autonomous individualism is set up is it's set up in a way where as the, all the stars are aligned and you are able bodied and have you know this and that and the other thing all going for you and everything works fine, then you can stay as autonomous as you need to until that moment in which you suddenly need community mm. and then 
you scramble around going, oh God, how do I do this without being a burden on anyone? Because I really didn't like it when people were a burden on me. Um, yeah. I, I guess just to preface all of this to say, this is not a um, kicking people who have left traumatized from church coercive oh, no, church communities right. yeah. are now uh, mm-hmm. having some space for it going and us trying to like bully people back into it. Like mm-hmm. not at all. I, yeah. I, I think we've talked at length about, you know, yeah. people needing space from, from communities while, before they kind of like work out whether they can re-engage with it or not. But as, as a way of being in the world, mm-hmm. I just don't think that the alternative of autonomous individualism is a great option once you've come out of coercive community. Yeah. Yeah, and and church is not the only answer to that question, or the absolutely you know, not. But um, and and yeah, and so totally, um, <laughs> totally have empathy and um, and an understanding for all of those for whom church has become too difficult a place to be. Mm. Um, and it's it's now and perhaps forever going to be for mm. some people a space that they are not going to be able to find a community mm. of care um, or that sense of connection because it's too triggering, it's too traumatising, it's been too harmful, or because their faith constructs they've had to, to leave behind for all sorts of reasons as well. Mm. Um, so, yes, kind of that's like the underlying And, and if premise. God is good and kind, God gets that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if there is a God, God understands. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. This is not some kind of, oh, God, but really like us all back at church, you know, um, <laughs> situation. It's more, I guess these are these 10.30 are over- start, Carly. <laughs> we'll be there. We'll <laughs> get the countdown kind of clock o- going. Overarching um, questions in, in, in a sense of do mm. these kind of communities still matter or, you know, mm. in what ways can, can they, they still matter? matter? Mm. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I think there's some interesting things to keep reflecting on, again, for the church that has had to, um, in, a, in a good way, I would say, for, or it's a good thing that the church has had to reconsider its place in the world mm. um, from mm. kind of like a given institution to actually, yeah. uh, and then to kind of a, a threatening institution, which is, well, <laughs> if, if you don't come mm. because you're just attached to the institution, then we'll terrify you to come or pressure you or coerce you or manipulate you to come. It's a much more interesting question to me to go, okay, what does it look like to develop communities that are healthy for us and yeah. actually move us toward well-being, and that people might want to participate in those because they are actually, while complicated and messy, also really beautiful and loving and caring spaces that are something helpful mm. in our lives. And I think one one kind of necessitates the other, right? If we're going to say the 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 answer to um, do we still need church, or you know, um, people very rightfully stepping out of these toxic church spaces, we you can't just coerce people and being like, well, it's really important because we can't live in isolation, <laughs> so you have to have community. So go back to a church. There's a responsibility on those of us who are building church spaces to actually create spaces that are healthy to mm. be going back to um, <laughs> if people do choose to step back into that. And mm. so um, I, th- I think you can't you can't really hold one without the other, um, you know. And But, yeah, I, th- I think that uh, for me personally, I think having church community um, has been 
really uh, important and it's something that I've, you know, I've continued it along with in, in a really different, you know, I was the person who was like never take a Sunday off there all the time kind of thing and there's been this process of me like working out that, uh, you know, h- how to like not be in a place every mm. single week is actually a real mm. challenge for me but a necessary one. Um, mm. in, in order to, to find that balance. But I find that question of like, do we still need church? Some, a little in my head, it's like, do we still, you know, do, do we need it? No, but I find personally like life is so much richer finding those places of community and belonging. And it, it doesn't have to, again, it doesn't have to be like a church, like we go to the church mm, building at 10.30 at yeah. Sunday and we sing three, mm, mm. two fast songs and three slow songs and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, I think just because as humans we have built this world where we can survive in isolation doesn't mean it's the richest or most fun mm. way for me to live. And so mm. I personally still find real value in, in church for, for all those reasons, you know, you, you've both said is um, not so much because of this coercive spiritual requirement of like, well, you have to be at church on Sunday or you're not a real Christian, but because I don't want to to be someone who moves through the world by myself. I, mm. I want to be mm. someone who who is in community with others. Um but I also recognise the responsibility that I've got to be a part of crafting communities that people want to be at, yeah. and they're not yeah. at just because they're like, "Oh, I might get a, I might get spiritually told off otherwise," you know. Yeah, mm. yeah. If, if I if I hadn't found a community I found safe, I would unequivocally not be in mm. church. Mm. Like, yeah. like no, no doubt whatsoever. And like, I'm I'm a bit of an initiator, so I'd probably try and initiate some other form of intentional community of some kind or something, but like I totally get that. Like if your experience is you have never seen a church apologize for being shit, um, mm. create systems where people aren't getting harmed and model a version of spirituality that's not coercive, then I have absolutely no qualms in saying I totally get that mm. you may well go, this is I'm never going near such a thing again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, well now we're talking about church, aren't we? Seem to have found ourselves doing that. Guess that was so. Shane's fault for we jumping into that question. Trojan horse into talking about church. Yeah, <clears throat> sorry about that. We may as well carry on now. <laughs> Can we put our city. church logo here? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. How does how does so we so we had a few questions about sort of the ways forward for the church in mm. terms of um, in light of all of this that we've been talking about. Um, how does the church move forward? And some of these were like really specific and quite practical and. Um, and so on. Let's start with this one, though. Um, how does the church move forward when it's still overwhelmingly led by old white men? Um, yeah, you can you can start with this one, Michael. Oh me, yeah. I'd, be, yeah. I'd be perfect to start with. as the oldest and whitest <laughs> of us all. And you've even got a beard. There's a triple threat of patriarchy. That's that's true, actually. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. And I do have some white hairs in my beard, which means I am getting older, aren't I? Mm-hmm. Um, no, Carly, I'd like to hear from you first, Carly. Ooh. Is wait for all the old white guys to die to, <laughs> on, on the nose? No. Um, <laughs> it's, better than kill, it's better than killing them. It's a pacifist view. I think, look, it's... 
this f- for me, like I, I, I resonate with what you said, Shay, where you're like, you're, I'm a doer. I'm very much the same. I'm like, I've seen a problem. What can I do to, to change it? What, you know, can I get involved in helping shape things in that? And I think probably all three of us have had the experience of working in these spaces often for decades, trying to bring change and, um, coming out the end of that and being like, well, that didn't work very well at all. <laughs> um, so it is it is really difficult. But I think, again, um, it's so important for us to recognise that the these particular mega church structures are by far not the only way that the world is doing mm. church. Mm. And so when we when we say, what's the way forward? Is there a way forward? In these mega church structures, I see it's that's a really difficult proposition. But there's there's so many other expressions of faith where women, where um, the LGBT community, mm-hmm. where um, non-white cis guys are already in leadership and and leading mm-hmm. the way. Um, mm-hmm. And so, is there a way forward for the church? Well, yeah, there 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 are already in many mm. places that's already taking place um, within the evangelical sort of mega church space. Um, time will tell. I think there's. Um, uh, I know there's been some there's some questions around this as well, but there's there's so much wrapped up um, beyond. Uh, mega church structures now um, in the realm of like politics and um, that kind of stuff that I think the mega church is so charged outside of just or who's running it. Um, and mm. I sometimes wonder if we uh, we're doing the girl boss thing where we're we're like, well, if we get yeah. some women um, mega church pastors, yeah. then does is that, yeah. or we get some, you know, some people of color to to pastor mega churches, then like we've done mm. it, we've we've solved the mega church, and I wonder if that's the, you know, is that going to solve this the structural challenges at the core of this that we've been talking about, mm. or are we, you know, girl bossifying our our structures. Can, and, can you, yeah. not everyone necessarily would have heard of that concept. Can you just uh, expand on that for a minute? I think oh, the girl you're, boss? You're, you're, mm. Yeah, I think you're really yeah. onto something. Like, yeah. Because yeah, not everyone will be familiar with that. So it's this idea um, that we have these um, s- structures in our various communities. So it's not just in church, in the way we run our finances, in the way we run our politics, in the way that our, all of our cultures are built that have these very deep systemic um, inequalities built in that harm people um, and benefit other people. And most people have a level of benefit and a level of harm being held in tension. Um, and what we do uh, instead of tackling the structure and the actual root cause, we will mm. put people who have traditionally been harmed by these structures in places of leadership um, as a way of covering over the cracks. So if Mm. we say, well, women have traditionally been harmed by these church structures. So what we'll do is we'll put women in leadership. But if we don't change any of those structures, what happens Mm. is you have a couple of women in the boardroom, um, but 
the majority of women in uh, outside the boardroom are still being paid less, are still being discriminated against, are still, yeah. you know, yeah. um, you know, being uh, negatively impacted by the way everything else mm. works. And so I feel like a lot of the time with our and, and correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, it also mm. it also often kind of encourages forms of leadership that replicate male ways of leading, you know, yes. like, you know, typically gender, gendered male ways of leading. So yeah. it might be, you know, <laughs> aggression and confidence and, you know, unilateral decision-making and making big calls instead of collaboration and all of these kinds of things. So it fosters, you know, this, this sense in which it conforms rather than kind of embracing the difference and metabolizing that and actually changing the shape of things. It actually just, as long as you fit that mm. structure you know that you that you have to adapt to it and then you might thrive at it but you can't yeah, change it yeah exactly yeah and so um i guess when we talk about um a way forward for the church we often think about it in terms of well if we get some you know some senior pastors mm. who are women or we get some senior pastors who are non-binary or part mm. of the lgbt community then we mm. we'll fix these but it, you know are are we actually going to change these structures or are we going to put people yeah. in the right place in, in the places that make us feel better about those structures continuing to exist hmm. I mean I think in some ways this, this, there's even kind of been a soft version over the years of kind of having like the like the senior pastor and the seniors past pastors mm. where effectively you've got representation because both of the senior pastors you know you've got a man and a lady, um, mm. but their expectation and roles are entirely different. Yeah. Um, there's, there's not mutuality in any in any form. There's still very clear expectations about each of them. So it's kind of smuggling it in but not actually changing anything like as, you, like as you've mm. described. Like, yeah. I, I, I think one of the things that obviously needs to happen is, is that space is made. So for, mm. you know, I'm a, you know, cishet, straight white man. Um, and, and, like we need to keep on making space. We need to keep on like moving out of the way. But at the same time, that's not necessarily just good enough either because mm. we have also been trained in particular skills and resources and have experiences um, that we wouldn't expect anyone else to fill that gap without any kind of training or experience mm. either. And so I think there is this kind of like longer arc of 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 fostering different ways of leading through mutuality, through mm. le communities learning off each other, through not just throwing people in the deep end um and going there fine you do it, but of learning off people who you know come from different spaces and places while also sharing with them experience that you've had the privilege of holding that space in and the experiences that you've that that you because you've sat in it for you know in my case sat in it for 20 years um that there's actually something to offer there as well and so it doesn't necessarily need to be a threat and that's why I'm you know so massive on <laughs> collaborative leadership structures because they mm. open the space for um not just one or the other but for this kind of like mutual learning community um and also there's just really practical things as well and that you know like so you know this happens in academics and theology all the time where you know you can't just like fire everyone from academics mm. because they're a particular kind of person and go, well, fine, you can just starve now. 
Mm. (laughs) They've got families to feed too. Like how do you metabolize that and work that in without keeping it something exclusive? But Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think the notion of collaboration that we've talked about before uh, and that you just mentioned there is is a helpful way to think about this and, and thinking about the systems as well, like you were saying, Carly, like where if you just replace the person with a more, you know, sort of as a diverse appointment but there's no attention mm. to the mm-hmm. system. Um, because if, yeah, if, if, the, if the conversation is essentially we've got this one person in charge who's a A-type personality who's has to make all of the decisions and everything ultimately comes back to that one person and we need to find a different one person to do all those same things um, that won't be enough to move us forward. Um, but there's yeah. got to be that that whole systems approach to what it is we're even trying to do and how we go about all of this. Mm. Having said all of that, I think, too, the, the question is still a good one, right, of here we have, um, we do have just so many of these institutions where the power is still held by mm. these um, these older, you know, men, um, u- mm. usually white, who are holding a lot of this power and, and that um, does create problems that are, mm. in terms of change, in terms of being able to institute change. So there's like, there's so many layers that are involved in this and I think that's one of the reasons why it's so hard for some of those large institutions to change because yeah. – Mm. The number of like factors that are intersecting here to create what this thing has become are so many that like taking out one part and replacing it um, doesn't actually solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay, good. Solved that issue. Great. On to the next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had some questions around um, money in the church, and this is something that. Uh, has been in the news a bit this year, how money has been um, both collected mm. uh, and used in the church. Um, we did have some people who thought we had, who wondered if we were avoiding the subject because it might be a bit, um, I don't know, that we might be worried of upsetting powerful people. Um, but no, <laughs> um, definitely not. And I think it's something we have we have nudged at a, a number of times, but thought it'd be good to just to c- touch on a couple of bits um, because some of the stories that are, that have come out this year, and you, I'm sure, be familiar with these kinds of stories, are incredibly pressured, coercive, manipulative mm. um, offerings, and and pressure on people to give um, huge amounts of money, uh, and then the many stories of the of the use of those funds for those people at the very top of the pyramid. I guess I'm mm. just interested um, in your reflections of some of this, I suppose. What, you know, do you, do you see the way that money is is talked about and used in these spaces as, as problematic, I'm going to guess? Probably yes. Um, what, are the same, what are some of the ways you've, you've seen that be problematic? Um, yeah. Just reflect. Do you want us to just go through our highlights <laughs> reel of the worst offering messages we've ever sat under or given? Yes, please. <laughs> because I we may we may need a longer podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because if uh, when when Frosty and I play, like to play our game called uh, Shock Baptist Meg, um, <laughs> who is my wife, uh, 
of the worst things that have ever happened in church that we've seen. A lot of them do involve offering stories mm. of various kinds and trailers and people giving their sneakers because um, they didn't have any money and things mm. like this. We've seen it all, and it's all very bad. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah I um, have had a really interesting experience with um, finances in the church, um, having been on employed in church. It's so, it's such a interesting topic because, you know, on one hand, uh, so many people who actually work in church are like grossly underpaid for mm, the level of, totally. of yeah. work that they do. Um, but then there's also the very valid other side of it of, of people, um, feeling like they need to, uh, give well beyond anything that should be considered reasonable or wise or even safe a lot of the time. Um, and I, 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 I was fortunate to be mostly in churches that did not. Um, uh, there was, I mean, it was still uh, big church spaces, so there was still an offering message every week. There was still a level of expectation around giving. Um, at the same time, there was also a a very explicit like, we don't know what you give, we don't care what you give. Um, uh, and then when I was working in London, British people are like allergic to talking about money. So there'd be this very like <laughs> embarrassed, like, if you want to give some money, you can, but it's all right. If not, anyway, have a nice day. Um, so I, I can't say that I ever felt like I was in a space that had, um, a particularly like massive pressure to mm. like give money that you didn't have. Having said that, I had a couple of experiences. I had an experience once with a with a pastor, and uh, I was in a car with them and another person, um, and we were driving back from um, a dinner. I was a student and an intern at the time, so I was a full time student and, and an intern because I hated sleep. And um, <laughs> we, uh, I was really, I wasn't like living in my car or anything, but I didn't have a lot of money. I was like flatting and living in a lounge and all this kind of stuff. And we'd had dinner and I, you know, it was one of those weeks where you chose between putting petrol in your car or buying food and I'd chosen petrol. So I just kind of like hung out and, um, and when, and when we were driving back to the church, the pastor, uh, uh turned around to me with someone else in the car and basically was like, your issue is that you're not generous. And went on this like, fairly long tirade about how I didn't pay for stuff and I didn't offer to pick up tabs and, and things like that. And, you know, I had, I think I had like $5 and 20 cents to my name at the time. And I was like, I mean, I'd love to pick up a tab. Oh so if you would like me to buy a, a pack of gum, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. But at the same time I was, um, you know, I was giving lots of hours and cause that's what I had that's what I had to give mm. was my time and, and like abilities as a, as a musician. So I gave very freely of that. I just didn't happen to have any money. And I think that for me really crystallized this uh, tendency in evangelical spaces to flatten the concept of being in community and giving. Mm. Um, mm. And I think there is a reality where the church needs to turn lights on and pay for their staff and all that mm. kind of thing. But I think when we step outside the church and when we're in community with each other, like in quote unquote just normal life, we recognize 
the times where we pick up more and we recognise the times when we are picked up. And so, you know, mm. we'll go out for lunch with a friend and we'll know that they've had a really expensive month because they, you know, had to pay a bill that was unexpected or something like that. And we'll pick up lunch for them because we know that we can afford it and it's a struggle for them. And then there's another, there'll be times where, you know, the opposite is true. Um, and there's this, there's this idea where we kind of naturally as humans organise our generosity um, around who needs what when. Um, but then when we walk into these like mm. church spaces, everything gets boiled down to like, you know, because I, I know one of the other questions was, is, is tithing biblical? And we, we boil it down to like, well, is it 10% of your net pay or your gross pay? And like, have I ticked the box? And and this this idea of like being generous with our community and with each other and being able mm. to give and receive that just gets mm. completely lost. And so mm. I think when we talk about money in the church, it's this like, bastardization for lack of a better terms of these original things that Jesus called us to of like building a community and giving what we have in healthy and sustainable ways, knowing that sometimes we can pick up more and sometimes we have less and we support each other in, in those ways. Um, I've gone mm. on a complete ramble, but um, no, no, that's, yeah, that's, you, 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 like, yeah, <laughs> what you're saying is resonating so strongly. Like, it's the worst. It's the worst of both worlds because mm. real, real needs aren't communicated and met, mm. um, and people are pressured to give coercively. And mm. you know, we've talked at length about what happens when you have a coercive God mm. <laughs> is that you end up justifying coercive means um mm. my big issue around this is that in the context that we come from um is that too often church the church that you are at with the name and the logo is conflated with god's house and mm. god's house is conflated with god mm. um and therefore any level of pressure is justified because you can't you know you can't outgive God and, um, you know, like who wouldn't want to give to God's house and all these God's house things like mm. that, that these communities of mutual care, which have real needs rather than saying we are under pressure as a community. Do we need to back off um, what we're investing in this, that and the other thing right now? Or are we able to combine mm. our resources to give? Like where are we at? We are more likely to just trample over people using spiritual authority to do so. And so yeah. for me, anything that is coerced or pressured is bad. Um, mm. Anything that promises something in return is wrong. Mm. <laughs> um, this idea that giving to God somehow um, sets you up for blessings and other means and writing down, you know, miracles on offering envelopes and all like that's all just bullshit. Like, like I don't want to start too much on it because it makes me too angry and I'll go on for too long. <laughs> but like that is, it's just, that's, that's all cooked. Like it's all, yeah. it's all, you know, it's all terrible theology. Like you could, it's, a child could tear it apart. It's, it's, it's bad. It's worse if it's not good. Yeah. Tithing is tithing biblical. I mean, let's, 
start on what biblical is, but yeah. is tithing in the Bible, sure, does it have yeah. any relevance to anything we're talking about? Absolutely not. Was it applied in any way that any Pentecostal preacher talks about? Absolutely no. Does it have anything to do with 10%? Yes and no. Is committing to giving a portion of your income to a church good? It can be fine. It cannot mm. be. Is it fair? That's absolutely not fair because 10% for someone living on the poverty line and 10% for someone who's got so much is absolutely unjust and mm. like and, and and in that sense I would say I, I'm not a big believer in the phrase biblical because I think mm. we need um to do better with scripture than to kind of like pull out the one universal truth of that. But if the arc of scripture goes anywhere, it is not towards a system which abuses some people and leaves them destitute. Um and then leaves other people just fine, um, but also getting expensive dinners given to them because their 10% just happens to be a whole lot more millions than someone else gives. Anything that sets some people apart because of how much they give um, is if you read the book of James, (laughs) you'll find you're in massive trouble for Mm. in the first place. So all of that to say, like, I think what it dodges is is us all being adults with a voice in church communities where we can say, what are the needs of the community? If we expect someone to do this work within the church community, whether it be administration or teaching or whatever it is, like, can we afford to pay them? Where is our budget at? What can we commit to do together? What needs have we got in the community? How are different people able to give in different ways? These are adult mature conversations and Mm. you just don't need abusive, coercive, over-spiritualized bullshit to raise enough funds to cover that stuff. You can just have honest conversations that aren't coercive. I'll hop off my pulpit now. Yeah. So so some of the questions that came in related to creativity, production, um, worship, music, that kind of stuff in the church. And people have obviously had experiences where that stuff has been really high quality. Mm. And... Um, feel like perhaps you know that that's something that was, and I think you might have even mentioned in a, in our previous chat that that that's something in some respects that appeals to you about the large mm. church space is yeah. the experience that comes with that whole thing, um, the experience yeah. of that collective being able to create something kind of beautiful or or moving or ex, you know that that to use the terrible word excellent um, but you know but as as a musician right like do, like mm. when you make amazing music it's incredibly fun um, yeah mm-hmm. so so um, how do we think about this but because we've also seen that this is one of the spaces where people feel a, l- a huge amount of pressure um, to perform to keep the wheels of the machine turning better not slacken off. Um, mm. better not look like a subpar performance, don't want to look like an average Baptist church, whatever the comment might be that tells people that this is supposed to be better than this. Uh, and so there's like these two things going on there and, and I think some people are trying to figure out what to do with that or they're, mm. they're missing that or can we still hold on to any of that. So, yeah, I don't know. Your reflections on that, Carly? Yeah, it is It is a, a really difficult one. I think um, wrapped up in the, the church side of it as well is just the nature of creativity. And I think a lot of creative people are really driven to um, try and do things that you would, you know, put under the umbrella of like excellence or perfection, you know, um, mm. you 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 know, just myself, my my natural thing when I'm, if I'm playing or writing, I want it to be as good as it can be. And so when I think, uh, you know, when you 
wrap that natural tendency up in a really high pressure church environment it can kind of take on a a bit of a life of its own Mm. um i do think that there is space for creativity in the church Uh, again it's one of those things where when we have experienced mostly one form of church we and we don't know the history of expression and creativity that's been worked out in churches and in faith, you know, that it's always been something that's been there, um, art and music and that have have a long and storied history as part of church and, and part of faith expressions. Um, and I think that we attach these specific ways of doing it in mega churches. And again, we like to attach these kind of spiritual um, uh, markers to it. Like doing Mm. it this way is spiritual and doing it that way is not glorifying God. And, but at the same Mm. time, like I've been in churches where, where people have really made an, uh, uh, sort of a point of pride, like oppressive pride, not out of how well they do it, but of how like little, like, oh, we don't need lights and we don't need this. And, you know, and, and there's this kind of like spiritual kind of pride coming mm. out of the mm. the turning away mm. of it. Um, mm. And so I think that, um, you know, we we've always, again, through church history, had challenges with this. I mean, um, Frosty, you might know, like, with the history of, like, Gregorian chant. So Gregorian chant is a a form of music which was built out of, as a choir form of music, was built out of two notes. And then they introduced the third note, the middle note, to make a chord, and that was called the devil's note. And it was, like, (laughs) rejected by the church for a really long time because it was seen as flashy and prideful Mm, and, like, mm. you know, not the, the correct way of doing things. So again, this like wrestle of like creativity in the church is something that will, has always been with us. Mm. Um, the organ was once called the devil's box of whistles. <laughs> I just still That's agree true. with that. Um, but uh, <laughs> I think that um, I think that there is um, there's a, a real challenge for people like myself. Um, because I do, I, I flip and love a big concert. I love it. Mm. I love lights, mm. and I love um, mm. I love stage dives and and there's something in me that just has always been drawn to that and um I've had to go on this like journey of recognizing that that's not um some kind of indicator of like spiritual depravity (laughs) that I I like (laughs) I like that space and that's okay Mm. and again I think when we talk you know um I think this is a, a blind spot in the deconstructive deconstructing area where we think that anything more than like an acoustic guitar and a single vocalist is like, you know, um, is, is, uh, going back to these like, um, uh, places of unhealthiness. Uh, And in doing so, we often alienate, um, again, like non-white, um, forms of Mm. church and church expression. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I, 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 uh, I genuinely think that there are ways to do big like stuff in a way that's not hyped. Um, in the same way, I think that a lot of our small ways of doing stuff have just as much spiritual hype. Mm. Um, mm. And I think that learning to embrace creativity in a way that is a like as a genuine form of expression, and however that works itself out is okay. So if that is one piano or one guitarist or whatever, then that's, 
that's totally fine. Or if it's a huge like production, then that's totally as fine as well. But I think it's similar to the to the the tithing argument, right? It's it's mm. it's much more. It's much less about what it looks like, and it's much more about how you arrived in that place in the in the first instance. Mm. So if if we've got to this place of like having a real sick band and great lights because everyone's staying up till three in the morning having panic attacks and trying to learn this song yeah. that yeah. the pastor decided that they really needed for their altar call at like Saturday night. That's really unhealthy. That's good. Oh, <laughs> unhealthy. Right, okay. Um, if, if you happen to be in a space where you've got some really good musicians who want to get together and play and that's an expression of worship and because they're really good, it sounds good. I personally, I don't see an, an issue with that, but uh, it's it really comes out of are we building structures that are healthy and enable mm-hmm. healthy expressions mm-hmm. as opposed to like well if you have four lights it's okay but if you have five lights then <laughs> like then Jesus will be mad at you yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it I, I again to 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 think about like that there's multiple in, invitations of creativity here because there's the creativity of let's say the music or the the whatever it is that, you know, might be going into a gathering. But then there's the creativity of thinking, okay, if you do have, let's say you have a, a band of really skilled musicians who are able to play something amazing, how does how do you structure things or cultivate a community that doesn't then foster a gap between mm. that group and the rest of the community so that now the community are sort of being... They're observing to, someone observe, else yeah, outwork their yeah, spirituality. Yeah. yeah, but but how do you then be creative in the structures and the and the practices so that what happens feels like it's being a a celebration of the life within the community that is being expressed and that is helping others mm. in the community to, to experience something too, um, mm-hmm. rather than um, what can happen, which is the the kind of separation and and the and the gulf that starts to grow between between the group who can like do the thing and the group who can't and then mm. how people feel when they aren't up to being in the group that can and, you know, all mm-hmm. of the things that they're in there in the, in the 3AM panic attacks. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, even in, and even in that, just na- being able to name the difference sometimes between yeah. saying this is something that is being put on for you, for you to witness and rest in the beauty of and, you know, like your... Mm. And, and then this is something congregational, like, mm-hmm. and that that the, both things are okay, but pretending that they're always the same thing isn't necessarily that helpful or that healthy. Yeah. And then going, you know, sometimes we have high points or thin spaces or we try and curate something with extra work and attention, um, but then we don't do that all the time because we also don't want to pre- pretend that this is real life and this is real spirituality. Like there's the capacity for actually just being able to name things and blend things and, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and what happens when, you know, the 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 person who runs those five lights um, suddenly experiences a tragedy or a crisis or gets really ill and mm. you'd planned on having your five lights, so now you've got to <laughs> yeah. bring up that person and... Tell them that and God yeah. will be very disappointed unless yeah, you turn the, up and do the thing, right? That's the question, right? Uh, are we are we cultivating a space where if one week we've got this like kick-ass um, band who like you know won a Grammy last week, and then the next week we have to put a CD on because 
you know, mm. everyone's sick or people are away. Are we in a space where both of those things are seen as um, equally like valid ways yeah. of mm. doing church yeah. that week? Or is it like, no, we have to have a drummer. If we don't have a drummer, you know, then God will go to another church and that would be sad. <laughs> <laughs> we have to have the best we band so Jesus comes s- to our church. <laughs> That's correct. We currently don't have a CD player. Are you saying we should get a CD player? Yes, or you could um, do Spotify. But that's not technically legal, so I didn't say that. I think that's a good place to finish. Um, Still lots more we could talk about, but we're going to, I'm sure we'll be back. More conversations to be had. uh, And as we've got a few more episodes before the end of the year, and then already starting to think about 2023. We need something that can rhyme with that so that it would be like a. a, you know, like a a year of promise or breakthrough or something, but it needs to rhyme with twenty twenty three if we're going to really succeed. Twenty twenty three. Can it be we? The year of the we. <laughs> yeah, just one e though. Yeah, that's good. Good. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Shane. My pleasure. Thank you, Carly. So there we go. A great convo with Carly and Shane, covering all sorts of interesting things. Thanks to both of them for sharing their time with me and with you. And thanks as always to Reese Michelle for his help in taking this audio and making it sound as good as possible in your ears. Until next time.